All right, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. And I have a very special guest today, Jelly Clark, who is the author of one of the best uh, horror novels I read last year, Ring Shout. And also, um, I have reviewed before with Black Drums God, but he is a historian and science fiction author. Welcome to the podcast, Jelly. Hey, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about these books, but one of the elephants we got to get um, pushed out of the room before we really get talking is that you write under a pen name because you're also an academic and a historian. Yeah. And that um, it's clear from reading your fiction that you are a trained historian because you... Um, I Okay. Yeah, but you weave great history in there. I'm no, I'm not complaining because I'm a history nerd, so um, I like those things. But um, but I imagine your love for fantasy and science fiction was probably an earlier love. Uh, what came first, history or fantasy and science fiction? Oh well, that's a good one. I, I mean, I'd have to say it's 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 fantasy and science fiction in some ways because it's what I was into as a kid. And so I guess in some ways uh, that came from my background. My parents were both science fiction uh, fans. And so, you know, my mom would have me watching The Twilight Zone. My father would have me watching uh, old Godzilla movies and Boris Karloff, those kinds of things. Uh, took me to the library to check out umpteen books on science fiction and fantasy. Uh, but then when I think about it, uh, if you had asked me my, where my history background comes from, my parents are also history nerds, Yeah, <laughs> right? My, they kept history books around the house. Uh, I don't know if I always paid attention to it as much. They watched historical dramas or documentaries. And so I suppose, of course, the fantasy and science fiction comes first because that's since childhood. But I, I think both have similar roots in some ways. Well, that's cool. And, and uh, a lot, I wasn't as lucky. I didn't, well, I was, my father was a political scientist. So I got that aspect um, kind of in the history and those kinds of things um, uh, from my father, but he wasn't into fiction at all. He didn't read fiction at all. So I'm sometimes jealous of, of those of you who come on the podcast and tell me that you were pulling books off the shelf, uh, science fiction and fantasy, because uh, um my, my father's library was almost all political science. Um, but so I didn't get that um, kind of thing growing up, but what were, were there particular touchstone works of science fiction, fantasy and horror that, that were a huge influence on you growing up? Like, so, I mean, I, sure. I mean, there were there, I suppose there were first the things as a kid, right? Those, read, those things you read as a kid, like probably one of my favorite I always cited is uh, Madeline Langle's uh, works, right? Um, I read A Wrinkle in Time, then I read Like a Wind in the Door, I was blown away. I, like, those are the ones I always remember. But I was reading all of that kind of stuff. When I went and I checked out stuff as kids, I remembered, take people back, I like checked out Danny Dunn, Boy Scientist. It was like a little bit of science fiction in it. I checked out anything like that uh, was going to, going to end up, you know, in my stack. Like I read all of the C.S. Lewis books. Uh, Narnia Chronicles of Narnia book and so the, when it came to my childhood reading I was reading that stuff right there was like like I would sometimes read the stuff that was just regular mundane world kids fiction you know I, was, I just threw that in there once in a while but 90% of my stuff was some type of we didn't have words like YA back there in the middle grade but it was it was that right that's what I was reading as a kid um, but then very early on, I, I think even like in elementary school, somebody put like The Hobbit in my hand and I saw that cartoon on TV. And so those right. kinds of things were influences. Then I think uh, I read I read Dune by middle school um, and works like especially like Ray Bradbury's uh, Illustrated Man. That was like a big one. So all of those things were definitely influences um, when I was younger. Uh, and then, you know, by the time I think I, I hit college is when I, I think I first read my first like Octavia Butler, which mm -hmm. is like, you know, and I really was like, oh, wow, science fiction can be extremely complex and pertain to the real world. And so that's like kind of my trajectory in some ways. 
Well, you read my mind because my next question was about the trajectory and where, uh, where, because um, yeah, I had the same kind of similar thing too, where I was reading Dune and stuff like that when I was uh, about the same age. And then there's the point where you have like an author who, you know, takes you to the next level. So and yeah. for you it was Octavia Butler. She was great. She's great. Um, and one of the most important, obviously, uh, uh, voices of, of the last century um, science yeah. fiction. So, and we lost way too soon. Um, right. Now, what role does, uh, I believe you grew up in Houston, right? Most, yeah. yeah, I mean, most of my life was in Houston. Even though yeah. we moved there from New York, I'd lived earlier in the Caribbean, but most of my, uh, that, that, those, that stage when you grow up and you, you kind of set your personality, that was mostly Houston. Right, yeah. and I like to talk to, to different writers about like the cities and the communities they grew up in, because I think it does play such a role um, in, in how they come up. Do you, have you, um, how do you think that um, being, um, your formative years in Houston had an effect on you as as uh, a fantasy and science fiction writer. Mm. I mean, there's you know the South is its own place, and and th there are ways that for one because we had moved to the South from uh, New York, it just felt almost like a portal fantasy where you <laughs> you step through the wardrobe and you're in another world because the South was Texas was just a completely different world from you know Staten Island and Brooklyn. New York. And so in one ways, I always had that feeling of I'm from somewhere else. I'm almost a traveler in this place. And so I'm constantly observing and trying to understand and making friends and learning new cultural tones. And there's my dog again. And down, yeah, so. <laughs> no, we love dogs here, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, there's so in, in a simple way, that was its own influence, right? Um, and then I suppose, especially for something like Ring Shout, it was just being introduced to various different cultures and different uh, perspectives and histories and what have you. And, you know, I, like when I wrote Ring Shout, we haven't, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but a lot of that in a sense was like my ode to uh, growing up in the South. I wanted to create this fantasy type story that was not set in places that people tend to expect, but which I thought uh, came with its own type of magic even though I grew up in very urban uh, Houston, right? Still the South. <laughs> right. And then, um, so along the way, you became a historian, which I feel yeah. uh, plays like a huge role, at least in the two works of yours that I read. Um, and I'd imagine as a historian, once you start delving into that, uh, the stories just present themselves where you're, you know, you, you see these aspects of history, but how did you get interested in in history specific and like you know why did you choose that path as an academic yeah i mean it's funny as i think i said before i think i had always had an interest in history um but i didn't think of it as a career path early on but i do know it was like one of my favorite subjects i would just like reading history even in texas where our texas history book was like this thick because texas mm -hmm. uh it was an awful textbook, but I still liked reading it. Right? <laughs> so right. I think I was always into history in some way, but I actually didn't enter uh, college as a historian, as a major in history that came much later. I went through several phases before I finally, I landed on that thing that I think I'd been running away from. It's like, it is your favorite subject. Why aren't you a historian? And that's kind of how that happened. But it wasn't something that I thought uh, would happen when I entered uh, Legion Rem. It's something that came later, uh, and I'm glad I made the choice. But no longer a doctor, but my, my I'm no, no longer a medical. Uh, what was it? I was a medical medical school undergrad. My parents took it well. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like, well, you'll have you'll you'll have a doctor in front of your name anyway. Then it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so it interests me too because. You know, I, writers come from two paths, usually, uh, authors. They are either the ones who, from day one, they knew absolutely they had to be a storyteller, or they eventually figured out, hey, this is something I want to do. Which, which path were you? Were you one of the, I was always going to be a writer, or? or no or, way. No way. Uh, Much like history and, you know, talk about the reasons this was, 
being a writer didn't seem like something that was a feasible path. It didn't seem like something that was realistic. It almost seemed like, well, yeah, I know there are people who are writers, but you know, there are people who are astronauts and people who are, you know, movie stars. I'm not, I'm, I'm not aiming for that kind of thing. It wasn't even, it wasn't even if like, I was like, oh no, I can't do it. It simply wasn't on my radar to do. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, since I was younger, because I read so much, I would sometimes take my hands at trying to write my own things. So I would write little short stories or I would make comic books, but they were for my friends, for my little sister, you know, for that kind of thing, just for myself. And I had like a bunch of these. Um, but I don't think I, I don't think I see, thought of writing as a serious endeavor, as something in where something where people would people would for one publish, much less pay. But people would publish words that I wrote and like them as <laughs> strangers, right? And so <laughs> I don't think I thought of that until after college. I had graduated, years had passed uh, before I was like, what if I actually tried to become a writer? And it was like this light bulb went off. And uh, that's about when it started, yeah. Yeah, and did you have, you know, sometimes writers have like the one story that they've been chasing and maybe they don't know, you know, is that one that you've already started to tackle or is, there, is that one we have to wait? Right. Well, it's funny you say that. Like my, my first story that I ever tackled is supposed to be this multi-toned, you know, I'm talking, I'm <laughs> right. talking Malazan level, Branderson type, uh, Sanderson type, you know, fantasy uh, that was going to be massive. And I actually wrote four books in that. And then I just, uh, to share how long ago that was, I slapped them on my, I forget what was it, a zip drive back in the day? I yeah. slapped them on there and they just collected dust. <laughs> and so I had that, I had that one, I guess, lucky for me, even though it was my, it was where I started, I was able to let it go and move on and do other things. But you probably right. learned a lot writing them, so they're probably yeah. still very valuable. Right. I, yeah. I learned a lot, but if I go back and look at it now, I'm sure I'll cringe. I've actually thought of, it's all there, like, why not yeah. revamp it? You know, what would I think now looking back at it, like, 20 years later? That's how old this thing yeah. is. Like, what would be my thoughts of it now? I, I don't know. But when I first moved away from that and I started writing short stories, I certainly had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I was writing short stories that were like 15, 20,000 words long and calling it a short story, right? I, yeah. I knew nothing about the market and the industry, but I did have a lot of drive to write, which was good in its own way. Right. So like in my case, I think that if I had told myself before I started my first novel yeah. that I would write entire novels that I just would never even care about later and I'd just be like that's okay I'll just forget about that which has been mind-boggling and on top of that um word is important yeah well right. I have one novel that even after I was publishing that I got two-thirds of the way through the novel knew it wasn't working but I finished it anyways even though I knew halfway through I'm never going to publish this I'm never going to do anything with it but just for my own like mental health, I finished it. Sometimes you have to do that. There are stories and I've written some novellas that are, they will exist in my own abyss. I will never pull them out of that abyss, but I right. had to pull them out. Yeah. They'll never see the light of day. That's what they'll say. Yeah. And so you started publishing with, uh, you had a few novellas that came out first and I believe they were like an alternate history that takes place in Cairo. Now those are yeah. ones that, are on my radar. I'm going to read them. I just haven't gotten there yet. I called them a dead jet in Cairo world because that was the first story. Yeah. And yeah, that was published by Tor. It was a novelette and then a novella. And that's the one, the upcoming novel in May that's coming out will be based in. And what was interesting about that was that- I uh, see, you just read my next question. Oh, or you just answered it. So good. Uh, it will be a novel soon, huh? Yeah. You know, what I was going to say about that when you talk about trajectory and writing was that when I think about the, the law, like I always tell people, I always tell people, please stick with it if you're writing because mine is not a story of the person who had that idea and got their first novel and got their first book deal and like, wow, right? Right. Um, 
I, I think even after I'd started writing the, so long ago and thought of it professionally, it wasn't until 2010 that I started actually getting published. And then those were in indie publications, which I'm always thankful for. And then I started in, I started getting published short stories in semi-pro markets, right? But it wasn't yeah. until 2016 that I got my first, I call it the, the big break, right? Where Tor picks up a digit in Cairo, that, that novelette. And I kind of launched my career and my tenure so far with Tor, right? But it right. just all happened from that one story. But it, you know, it took a it took a while. It didn't happen. All, it didn't happen all at once. Yeah, it it rarely does. Um, <laughs> now, being published in the Tor novella series, um, I, I mean, that's why I read your work because uh, the Tor novella series is one that um, I expect quality from. So, like, if there's a no novella in the Tor line, I'm gonna read it. And yeah. so, yours was one that I. Um, kind of impulse checked out from the library because I went, oh, that's a tour novella. Knew nothing else about it. Saw the title, uh, which is um, Black God's Drum. Yeah. And uh, I kind of, you know, thumbed through it a little bit. And um, being that I'm from Indiana and um, um, acquaintances with Maurice Broadus and he'd done, he'd done kind of the Afrocentric um, steampunk thing too i like i looked at it and i said okay cool i i i'm i'm gonna gonna do this i loved black god's drum it was great um and immediately you know one of the things that i decided was okay whatever this author does i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna follow and um but the funny thing is between you and maurice both writing this is that Maurice, as I read, because he's from Indiana, he's from my home state, and I wanted to read his work. Yeah. And yours was because it was in the tour line, but I don't normally like steampunk. So <laughs> what I have to say is the strength of this novella um, really shined through with the characters, the world building, and all that, that it, it got me, who's not normally a steampunk reader, to really dig it. What's the hey. history and the story behind this novella? Yeah, so thank you for all that, by the way. I'm glad it could, I'm glad it could pull you in because when I was writing that story, it's like, you know, you read some steampunk stories and they get really technical and that's fine. Yeah. You get extremely down in the weeds and I was trying to create a story that was much more character driven, story driven, where the steampunk is there, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to make it all about a machine because yeah, I, I know some people, they're like, oh, it's like I'm reading a, a technical manual. <laughs> and so no the, the origins of that story are kind of like back back before anything this story is older than the dead gin story it's older than anything actually i think i wrote i think i first wrote a story in that world um back in like 2012 or 2013 mm -hmm. and so i just wanted to write this interesting story set in this alternate world a lot of it came from my own familiarity slightly with New Orleans because being from Houston, mm -hmm. there's a highway there, I-10, takes you straight to New Orleans and there's just a cultural back and forth between Houston and New Orleans that if you grew up there, you'll, you'll the joke is half of the people from Houston are actually from Louisiana. So you're gonna get some New Orleans culture. And so mm -hmm. I thought it would be a great place to set it. Um, dealing with my own studies, I studied slavery and emancipation and New Orleans is just this interesting port city that ties together this, 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 the, uh, the French Caribbean with the English Caribbean as well as the North American mainland. It's just this, this entrepot for all of these different um, regions and cultures and what have you. And so it just seemed the best place to set this, a type of alternate story. Um, and yeah, it just, I think I, I started writing, like I said, the first story in 2012 or 13. Interestingly, the first story I wrote in this world was actually focused on the ship captain, Anne-Marie. <laughs> she was actually the main character and I wrote that story. And speaking of tour novellas, one of the great things about tour novellas is that for overwriters like me, there's a place for my work to come out uh, rather than back in the day when I would write a story and it was, 12, 14,000, my job was then, how much do I have to cut to get it down to something reasonable? 
where can I even find a market that will take it? Even if I get it down to 8,000, <laughs> that will take it. And here is Tor saying, yeah, actually make it longer. We, we have this novella series, right? And so when I finished The Black God's Drums, it was actually a novelette. And basically I was able to pitch it to Diana Foe, who was at Tor at the time, my editor, because she basically asked after the success of The Dead Shit in Cairo, she was like, do you have anything else? And I was like, yeah, let me go through my old stories that I never thought would see the light of day. And I pitched it to her and she said, this is great. Can you make it longer? And I laughed. I said, of course, that's not a problem. And so it went from novelette to novella and it came out. Uh, thankfully, uh, it did well because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. It was uh, award nominated, correct? It, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, won an American Library Award. Uh, surprisingly, one of the interesting things it did well among middle grade readers, right? And I wrote it as, I guess I wrote it just as a, I would say a normie adult fiction, yeah. um, but it turned out to be something that parents were reading with their middle grade students, both liked it. So, you know, oh, we're like, did you yeah. win that? I said, no, it's, it's called luck. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I do know that when I got it, it was on the, the, the based out new book shelf at the, at the library branch in my neighborhood. So, yeah. so it was, you know, a librarian put it out there for me to find. So the book cover certainly helps. Yeah. Yeah. It has a great cover. cover. Yeah. Ring shout too. Uh, yeah. Now I'm wondering if you had a secret weapon with, um, with black God's drum that I always used to say that my dad was kind of one of my secret weapons whenever I had to write political fiction, because I could call on him and uh, being that your parents were, were immigrants mm -hmm. and, um, you know, culturally came from, you know, a different mm -hmm. background. I'm wondering if uh, your parents had an influence on this book um, in, in, in any way. I mean, certainly in some ways, not just my parents, but my extended family, like the ship captain, Anne Marie is named after a cousin. <laughs> <laughs> like her character is a composite of probably different women in my family. <laughs> so even the ship, uh, her airship is named the Midnight Robber. And that's an actual carnival character uh, from Trinidad. Uh, and so I named the ship that. And uh, author Nalo Hopkinson also has a book named after that same uh, carnival character. Right? And so there was definitely an influence and in, yeah definitely there was an influence i would say both my parents and the larger family well and it's cool because the the afro-caribbean um fantasy thing is 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 really becoming um a thing there's there's several of you doing it and and it's great uh, you know marisa's um Buffalo Soldiers, a lot of the theory or the, the world building spark is the idea that Jamaica is a superpower yeah. in this world. And I do it with Haiti, right? Yeah. And so, right. yeah, I love those. Yeah. Yeah. And then and Nalo's doing the same kind of stuff and now getting um, really well recognized for the work that she's doing. Yeah. Um, she's been really doing it. Yeah. She's been doing it for, for a while. Some ways of pioneering it. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so it, it's really cool to see the, um, oh, and uh, Karen Lord as well. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. Karen Lord, yep. Yeah. And uh, who's great. Um, who I, I'm a huge fan of Karen Lord. Um, she's uh, a, a dream guest for the podcast. I really want to get her up. Pull up the sword. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, but I think there, there are all of these, um, Black writers with Caribbean backgrounds who do have these fantastic stories to tell, right? There are those of us who are now elsewhere, whether we're in uh, in Europe, in London, or whatever, wherever the empire, wherever we went to the heart of empire, back to London, or as my parents came, they came to the United States, that you kind of have this bridge of cultures to draw from, which is great. And like, so that's what I tried to do at Black God's Drums. I pull on that Afro-Caribbean side, but I also pull on this African-American New Orleans side. In some ways, the composites that made what we would call jazz, right? This coming right. together of these cultures from these different places uh, to, to, create, to create this story. And so 
yeah, I think it's great that we have so many. I think of authors like uh, upcoming authors like uh, Brandon O'Brien or uh, RSA Garcia, who are showing that look, you can you can be from these small islands or um, uh, Caldwell Turnbull's uh, the lesson, right? That you can tell these fascinating stories uh, from these different perspectives, even if they're these small little islands. There's <laughs> still a lot from there. Yeah, well, and I like that that we have multiple multiple voices working in that. Uh, mm -hmm. in that realm so that's really great so yeah and i definitely recommend uh black drums um black god's drum to yep. uh the listeners but we're here to talk about ring shout ring shout is the one that i read most recently and yep. um it's your most recent hardcover release um and i know it was already on my radar because i had read black god's drum and it was funny because i had it kind of in my queue from the library. And then I had uh, Sadie Mother Horror on from um, on uh, our top 10 mm -hmm. horror novels podcast. And um, she wanted to have one new release on her on on her list. And she put Ring Shout at on her top 10 horror novels of all time. And she's been great in publicizing it. She's yeah. been great. Yeah, she she really loved it. But when she said that, I was like, all right, I'm bumping it up. <laughs> I'm going to make sure I read it before the end of the year. Um, and uh, she was definitely an influence in me, like reading it sooner rather than and making sure that it got higher up on my list. <laughs> and uh, so I want to give a shout out to Sadie. But um, so where did Ring Shout come from? Um, was this something that a seed that was planted while you were doing your your historical work or wh where was the seed of this uh if I, if I were to talk about the seed though I, I would call this the proto seed like i didn't know it was to be a story yet but certainly some of the main themes uh the notion for instance of ku klux klan as monsters uh actually comes from my readings of uh the ex-slave narratives uh taken from uh, African-Americans in the 1930s of these, the, basically the last living generation of people who had experienced slavery. And they also experienced reconstruction and the birth of the first Klan, right? These ex-Confederate soldiers who create like a terrorist organization throughout the old Confederacy. And when they spoke of this uh, first Klan, they often said they didn't dress like we think of the Klan today. Some of them wore uh, sacks over their heads some of them wore horns or carried chains <laughs> or wore like pretended they had tails, others of them blackened their faces. And so they had these different ways of dressing and the for some form of slaves called them haints, that is ghosts, or they referred to them as spirits and monsters. And they would even talk about them uh, doing these things to make themselves seem supernatural, like drinking a ton of water, right? <laughs> or that if you wanted to stop them, you would put vines out on the road and there were supernatural ways to stop them. Now, I often think of the, uh, the ring rates, <laughs> right? Like there are these the ways that they couldn't cross water and things like that. And so I was just always fascinated by this, by the way that uh, you had people who are talking about this trauma of terror that they experienced and the way they decided to express that through the fantastic, right? By telling this type of folklore. And I first came across that working on a master's thesis, like, like about, I would say uh, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, about 15 years ago. Uh, and I kind of, I saw all that, I took down notes and I just tucked it away. And I said, one day I'm gonna write a story that is somehow involved in this. And I have no idea how. And I don't think I finally came up with the idea until about maybe about five years ago or so, around 2015, five, six years ago, 2015, uh, the story started coming to me. And it started coming to me because I was listening to Ring Shout songs uh, that I came across. Um, I would see things like Beyonce's formation video and I would just start jotting down notes because I would see certain images in there that I thought were influential and it just started coming into place, but I, I still didn't have a story down until I pitched it to, again, my editor, who at the time at tour was Diana Foe, who was asking me if I had any, any story ideas for a possible novella before the coming of my novel. 
my debut novel. Um, she's like, you know, because you want to keep your name name out there. And I was like, well, I got this weird idea that's supposed to be a Southern Gothic horror. I haven't fully formed it yet, but I pitched the idea. And she said, if you can do that, it sounds great. And right. that was 2000, that was 2018, <laughs> right? So that was when that happened, that's when I had to come up with the story. And so it had this, again, you can tell you it has this long trajectory, but it's really between 2015 and 2018 that I think the stories developed and not until 2018 that I actually have the ideas of what I want to do. Well, and a really interesting thing about the construction of this book, and when I think about um, um, Black God's Drum, which is which is very heavy on that you you had to do, because it's steampunk and it's fantasy, you're doing lots of, of world building, and there's lots of world building and setup and ring shout, but so much of it is based on the history and placing you the history is doing a lot of the world building yeah. for you in this book. And that's something about the writing of it that I thought was, was really, was really cool. So um, I, I think probably a lot of that came to you naturally just because you've studied the era so much. Did you have to get yourself into the mindset of the era in a particular way? Oh yeah. Um, as much as I'd studied it, my own, my, the history that I normally study is, you know, like about a century before. <laughs> so right. even me coming into it, like I had to, I had to read scholars who were uh, in that time period. I think I, I watched a few things, like, even though it's a little later, like I, I rewatched The Color Purple and things like this, right. or older films, just to kind of get my idea for this, you know, what this, what this era might feel like. And so, yeah, it took, it took a lot of that, you know, as a writer, um, no matter how well versed you are, you're going to spend several hours trying to figure out what kind of shoes someone wore. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, or getting the streets down. Like I have to get old maps of Macon so that I, you know, and put them over new maps. And so there's always, you know, it, when, when you're, it's great sometimes if you do, a, I would say it's great when you do a fully secondary world, because then you can put things wherever you want. But if you're right. dealing with our world, you, as fantastic as you want to make it, you, you, you've got to go by certain rules, right? And making is where it is. And I had to get some things right. Like how fast is a, like part of the story takes place in Stone Mountain. How far is Stone Mountain from Macon? How fast is a car during the 1920s? How long would it take to get there? That took like, it took math. I had to do math <laughs> in order to get that right. So yeah, there was, there was a lot of, it, it did take a, I mean, it always does for any book. You have to get behind the character and figure out how they would feel and move and interact in that age uh, in order to get it right. Right, now, um, I know everybody likes to, it's reductive to give the elevator pitches and I know that and, and, and they're as painful for writers more than anything is to do the elevator pitches, but you gotta do them sometimes. And um, I, at one point told somebody and they asked me what I was reading when I had the book. And I said, well, it's kind of like supernatural meets birth of a nation. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. And, um, and I was like, but you know, you always have to add, but better than that, but you know, <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't want to reduce just the level to which the, the monstrosity of the clan is because they're, way more monstrous than I would say um, than most of the the monsters in um, Supernatural, but not more so than in Birth of a Nation, right? That's so, a very good point. That's a very good uh, point, which I do try to get at, right? I always try to say, I'm not trying to say here that uh, the clan are the way they are because they're monsters. No, I point out that some of them are quite human. Right, <laughs> right. That, Distinction between Ku Kluxes and clans, yeah. So, yeah. But no, I think uh, no. Go ahead. No, and and so, to the to the people of color in the South in that era, the idea that there are ghosts hiding in white and demons behind white cloaks is is a very real concept. Yeah. So how was that balance of between you know finding that balance between knowing that these were real. You, you want to portray the, the nastiness of the real humans, 
but also play with the idea that that in this story they there are monsters there or yeah how, how did you play with that there with ring shot because the line is purposely blurred right yeah it's purposely blurred and it's a fine line because again you can fall into the trap of saying well the clan are the way they are because they're just monsters right and, yeah. and in some ways well then that excuses <laughs> that excuses the racism and so forth because they're inhuman the monsters are going to do what they do because they're monsters and so i think what i did was i took my cues from those interviews right who would say like yeah the clan would you know do these supernatural things like drink all this water but we we saw the trick we could tell they were playing, but we could we could see the hose they had and that it was a bag, right? Or they would pretend they were haints, but we knew it was, we actually knew who they were, right? They would dress in these things and pretend they were ghosts, but that was our former slave owner, or that was so-and-so who lived down the farmer, right? We we know who these guys are. And so it was always this this back and forth and this play where it's like, we understand when they put on a mask, they become monstrous, but we know that these are people behind those masks and we even know who those people are, mm -hmm. right? And so I tried to take my cue from that in, you know, speaking of, in this case, the clan is monstrous, but also the fact that what they're doing, these are human beings doing inhuman things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, that's why, again, I chose that notion of, uh, uh, to give away some spoilers in the book, if, you know, if there are some people who are fully turned and they are fully monstrous, uh, inhuman clan. And then there are people who, there are human beings who haven't become that yet, but they're still doing inhuman acts, right? And it's a trajectory on moving towards that, you know, that lo losing their humanity altogether. But they, they've, they've chosen to go down that path, right? It's not something that's done to them accidentally. They, they, they may not know fully what they're getting into, but they've gotten into it willfully. Mm -hmm. Now, um, your main character, uh, Mar Maurice Bordeaux, mm -hmm. um, tell me about her and her fight and um, like coming up with this idea of these kind of anti-clan warriors of the era that I, I'm sure they're, they <laughs> existed. I'm sure there were people at, at that time who were picking up arms and fighting against them how much of that is real history and how much of this is 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 invented with with her yeah i mean in some ways well they didn't have swords i don't know if any of them had magic swords <laughs> yeah so it's invented right certainly i should point out you know marisa's story and the story that she said in 1920s is actually becoming the second plan right uh because the first plan had for the most part one uh with the coming of radical uh reconstruction and the coming of uh, president Grant, the former Union general who becomes president, he actually has these enforcement acts and he pretty much breaks the back of the Klan. They're kind of, uh, the Union troops kind of hunt them down. They figure out who people are. They call them before court. Ex-slaves come out and testify against them. And the Klan, for the most part, is pretty much neutralized. Um, and then the second reason the Klan dies, this first Klan dies out, is that we all know because Reconstruction is killed, and troops are pulled out of the South, uh, Jim Crow wins. The Klan got what it wanted, right? It, yeah. it, 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 lo it lost the battle, but it won the war uh, because the South becomes a Jim Crow apartheid system. So the Klan that comes about in the 1920s, in 1915, is directly linked to the movie Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation comes out. It's this uh, basically a, a false retelling of reconstruction and slavery, and it glorifies the Klan, that first Klan, and some uh, adherents and lovers of the movie who see the film go out and basically recreate the Klan. Uh, and this Klan is based heavily on the movie. Sometimes I call them the movie Klan. <laughs> they dress like them. They perform rituals that way, and they, they were cosplaying of the era. Yeah, they're cosplaying the sense, and they uh, are much bigger. The first clan is mostly situated thousands of people, uh, members throughout the Confederate States. The second clan uh, expands all throughout the United States, right? So that it has anywhere from three to five million members at the end of the day. Uh, and it is not just in the South, it's in Seattle, it's in Indiana, it's uh, uh, in, in Maine, it is, you know, it's everywhere. 
and so this second plan is much more insidious. It's, it's, its enemies list has grown. It now dislikes also Jews, uh, immigrants for the most part, Catholics and others. And it becomes a menace because it, it runs for political office. Clan members don't, many of them don't bother to wear the sheets or just out in public. And it's become such a normalizing part of American society that, yeah, people have to often fight back against them. And we see uh, during the red summer of 1919, uh, um, African-American soldiers returning from World War I do pick up rifles to defend their communities against the Klan. In fact, one of the famous lines I didn't get to put in the book I wanted to put in was Rosa Parks, uh, speaking of her grandfather defending their town against possible Klan uh, in the early 1920s or so. And she says, I wanted to see him kill a Ku Klux there. <laughs> Right. This is Rosa right. Parks talking about our grandfather standing there guarding. And so I would say most of it was defensive in many ways. You know, we're going to ring our communities and defend. Uh, author um, and editor Bill Campbell has a wonderful new uh, graphic novel coming out about, uh, about, about uh, an actual attempt of the Klan to march on this Irish Catholic community in Carnegie, uh, Pennsylvania, and running into them and there being a full brawl and melee over that. So they were often resistant, but understand that they were powerful and they had the air of powerful people. So most of this was defensive. And so I think what I create beyond the monsters and the swords is I have people who are actually at times making offensive actions, right? Taking the fight to them in ways that would likely have been very hard pressed and impossible. Though I'm not saying it couldn't have happened. Uh, and probably there are probably historians who might give you some good stories about people who went off and offensively did so, but that would have been much harder to do in real life. But I got monsters, so I can kind of do what I want. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, um, like I always do in this podcast, I, I found a quote from the book that I kind of I see as as the mission statement. And this time I was smart enough to, to cue you up because you were holding the book uh, to read it. Um, and this is uh, from uh, about halfway through the book or maybe a third, but uh, it really speaks to the part that we were talking about before about this idea of um, what to people, to people in the South, and that era, what the Klan represented and what they meant. And I think to me, this was like a big heart, uh, beating heart of the novel was, was, was this, this line. And, um, and if you wanna, you wanna read this paragraph for us. Um, for, yeah, sure. yeah. It's they come one night, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So this is Maurice talking and she's remembering. Uh, they come one night while we sleeping men wearing white sheets and hoods. Daddy opened the door holding a shotgun and they start quarreling. My brother, he say they look like ghosts, but I can see them proper. They ain't men, they're monsters. I tried to tell mama, but my brother put, puts me into the hatch, right? And then it goes yeah, on yeah. all the rest, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that part just really hit me when I read it. That's when I felt like, like the novel like I, I, the novel was communicating with me. And what I, and the reason why I picked that is because I feel with that line, your book is not just in conversation with history, but confronting history yeah. in a way. Um, did you feel like that confrontation with history was part of the mission of the book or was it something that just kind of happened organically? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I was confronting this history. I'm confronting this film, Birth of a Nation, and what it meant, uh, the power that it seemed to have uh, and still has with our era of Confederate statues and what have you, right? The, the, the power of media in manipulating people, but also the biases that people bring to that media that makes them easy to be manipulated. And, you know, so there are all of these layers of things. And even that, it's funny that you, you latched onto that scene because when I think about my influences from it, it comes from Malcolm X discussing his, uh, talking about uh, his father uh, who would be harassed by the Klan, right? And his 
and how the clan must have looked to him, right? And she's speaking like, like she's speaking also, she's a child. So she's speaking about this through younger eyes and what she's seeing. And uh, I think if anybody's ever seen Spike Lee's uh, movie, Malcolm X, he captures this scene really well, right? Where young Malcolm is talking about the clan and how they ride off and there's this huge moon in the sky. It's almost surreal when they, when they ride off to it, right? And that they look almost, uh, almost supernatural and monstrous in the way they are. And so I was, again, blurring those lines, right? Between uh, in, inhuman people and fully inhuman monsters and how that works. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of confrontation here of history. There's a lot of confrontations of a certain popular writer. <laughs> Uh, that I got uh, questions who, on. Who, who, I'm, who I'm both drawing from and critiquing in my own way. Uh, and so, yeah. We'll, we'll come so, back to that and give a little bit of a spoiler horn before. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I want to go too far. I, I thought you might bring that up. So I just. Yeah, yeah. we'll come back to that. Um, but you did release this book in 2020. And you released this book during this, uh, right around the time that. Um, you know, uh, George Floyd and the response to, to Black Lives Matter right. and, and everything that was going on this summer, that had to be really interesting as well uh, yes. to have this book because I think there's a lot of books that I read this year that accidentally had more meaning because they came out in 2020 than, than the author expected. And three of them, yeah. including you, I have yeah. not uh, Josh Mallerman did not expect the mask debate when he wrote the sequel yeah. Bird Box, right? right. And uh, and he did not foresee that the mask debate meeting the blindfold debate in his book. Uh, Paul Tremblay didn't realize he was going to be releasing a pandemic book with Survivor Song before this yeah. year. And Ring Shout comes out in the same year that, and obviously, you know, George Floyd is unfortunately not... Um, isolated but, yeah. he, but he is from Houston mm. and um and this book came out and I I think I knew that you were from Houston or maybe I saw the back but but I couldn't shake that feeling when I was when I was reading the book that how much more important this book was because it came out this year and yeah. I can't not ask you how you how you felt about that you know it, it was surreal I mean right up to the incidents of January 6th at the Capitol, right? I was right. like, well, this is, this is like, if Rachel had a syllabus, I have to put all of this on here, right? It's like, it's, all of this stuff seems so related, right? And now there's a focus on the power of white supremacy and people are remembering, all right, I, I say remembering and recounting all these historical instances, like the overthrow of the government in Wilmington, right? <laughs> and right. by a white supremacist group, and so, it's interesting how these histories are converging at this moment. And I'm glad you put on there accidentally because I've had people ask me like, did you intend that? But as a person who's written novels and knows how slow the publishing world is, yeah. you know that no, this stuff was written, there was things going on, but this wasn't going on, right? Like by the time right. it comes out, they select dates for books to come out that's selected like a year in advance. And so yeah. I, I will say that when I was writing it and thinking of it, I do know that when I was first thinking of this, I, I think of, again, I mentioned Beyonce's formation video. So things that were happening in the background were like Ferguson and Trayvon Martin had happened a few years ago. And I don't know that, you know, like I can't say that I am, I was directly thinking of those things and writing as I did, but I always say it seems, it would, I would be remiss to say that it wasn't always in the background. Right. And it didn't have its influence that way in writing some of the things I did. Like certain scenes that I had to cut out for time, their encounter with one of Macon's police officers, for instance, was directly related to issues happening uh, back in 2014, 2015 that just got cut on the editing room floor. Um, certain quotes that came from the ex-slave narratives of them talking about their encounters with the Klan, right, were drawing on all kinds of things from the past few years. And I was certainly thinking of things like the Unite the Right rally and all these things as I put them in there. Um, but you know, I, I, you never know sometimes what your influences are and what, what is working on you consciously or subconsciously mm. to put in there. But you know, certainly some things, um, some, I drew on those things, but I, 
I think the best thing, what you just said, uh, was a George Floyd was unfortunately not singular. It was these familiar yeah. things that happened. And so there are ways that I suppose some of the things from this summer to what happened at the Capitol just a few weeks ago are, was kind of like the, one could say the climax, but I'm gonna never say that we hit the climax in the movie yet, uh, was kind of like a crescendo that's been building, right, for the past few years. And so if I'm coming out, and so, you know what I'm saying, I think I'm pulling on the very same things that that are going to create this mo these moments that, that led to these moments. I think that was always in my background. It was just always that background noise that, of course, is seeping into me. Is that right? So I, I guess that's the best way to explain it. Yeah. Yeah. I had uh, uh, I have a novel that I'm currently um, shopping that uh, I had the opposite reaction happen, where people were um, scared of the book <laughs> because it was so relevant. To, to the things that were going on. And, and it was the same thing. Like we wrote it three, four years ago, but you know, it, it definitely directly addresses the issues behind Black Lives Matter and, and, and systemic racism and all that stuff. And we had um, one um, agent walk away just because he was like, it's too close to home. Can't do it. Can't do it. And uh, so, it's better to be out accidentally, <laughs> right? I mean, same with uh, HBO's adaptation of Lovecraft Country. I mean, yeah. talk about hitting it right on the nose. And, yeah. you know, and people are like, you think it counts like, you know, long ago they likely sat down and started, how long it takes to make it home? Like they were doing this years before, but there it is. But there it is. All right, so before we get into, we're going to do a short spoiler section, um, just because there's one thing that I don't want to give away, but I definitely want to talk about. But before we do that, just last, I just want to make a last shout out to people who are listening who want to avoid spoilers. Like, you definitely want to read this book. It's great. Um, Ring Shout is is awesome. Uh, and But let's go ahead and and uh, tell people how they can find you online and what's coming next. So uh, you can find me online at, I have a, one of those nice professional author websites. Uh, this is basically my name, uh, pjellyclark.com. Uh, I also blog infrequently and that blog is linked uh, to my main website. The blog is called the Disgruntled Haradrim uh, for any token fans. Um, and you can just find me on things like Twitter by that same name, uh, P. Shelley Clark. Yeah. Uh, and upcoming, uh, my debut full-length novel. After all this time, after all the novellas and novelettes and short stories, I finally get a full-length novel, which will be out from tour in May uh, 2021. It is called A Master of Jin, and it is basically uh, the next installment in the uh, world that started off as a dead shit in Cairo and the haunting of Trampart 015. So whole novel this time. I would argue the ring shot is a novel, but um, if of mice and men is a novel, then so let's put it this way for the purposes of marketing categories. Uh, okay. My editor made certain that I kept it under just under a certain word count. I'm talking like by a hair's breadth. So there's a lot of chopping. People are like, well, you got so much into this uh, little bit. That's a, that was called a lot of chopping and editing to get it under the magical word count. <laughs> so maybe one day we'll get uh, a director's cut with- uh... Director's cut, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I'm gonna give a spoiler warning and I wanna, and, and we're gonna let it loose a little bit on the writing of the book and uh, a particular aspect of it. So if you don't want anything spoiled, um, <laughs> uh come back after you finish reading the book <laughs> but okay so obviously another thing in the zeitgeist right now <laughs> is the the um conversation between um uh fancy science fiction horror writers with and confronting the racism of hp lovecraft yeah that guy <laughs> yeah and 2020 has no shortage of that between no, no. Lovecraft Country, obviously on HBO, 
which of course the original novel is written by white author Matt Ruff, but um, all black filmmakers like behind really it. took it to the and I like Matt Ruff's novel, but my God, did they take it to a next level? <laughs> in I, the agree. I think the TV yeah. Show, but in, yeah, I like yeah. both, but I agree with you. Um, I actually like Matt Ruff's uh, alternate history novel better than Mirage. Um, if you've never read that, it's really good. Uh, put it on my list. I hate something about the ending, but it's a really good book. But um, but yeah, this conversation and uh, N.K. Jemison um, and mm -hmm. I'm kind of spoiler for the city. Uh, the the city, city, yeah. Um, very very Lovecraftian in its own, yeah. Very Lovecraftian and in conversation with Lovecraft in the same way as Ring Shout. Yeah. So it's it. There's a lot of parallels there, but um, you very specifically want we're having this conversation with Lovecraft. Yeah. And tying it to the mythology of the clan. Um, how did you happen upon that? You, I, I'm assuming you felt like you couldn't ignore that, right? But, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, Lovecraft is always such an interesting character. And I should say these conversations have been long in going. I think they probably got actually pushed out in the open when uh, Daniel Jose Older uh, petitioned to have the bust that uh, was, yeah, the World Fantasy Award changed from Lovecraft's severed head to something else, right, uh, several years ago. And so I think people started having uh, probably what were long conversations, but I think people got exposed to a lot more of Lovecraft's, you know, very terrible uh, ideologies. Unrepented, by the way. It wasn't like there was a point in which he was like, yeah, that was bad stuff I was saying. I've changed my leaf, <laughs> turn over new leaf. He just kept on with it. Uh, and I think people got exposed to those kinds of things. And so, you know, it's, it was interesting because at the same time, uh, I say like Lovecraft's, those, those tomes and those ideologies are everywhere. Whether you're, you're, you're reading a graphic novel like Hellboy or you're, uh, or you're, um, or you're reading Marvel, I could argue to Galactus and these kinds of world devouring uh, beings or you're watching Buffy. Yeah. <laughs> Right, is everywhere, and yeah, this stuff is is everywhere. And so I always say, like people always say, like you're doing Lovecraftian things. I said a lot of people may do it without ever having read Lovecraft, right? Yeah. Maybe they watch John Carpenter's The Thing or something like that, and this is where they're getting it from, or they watched some some derivation, and they've never bothered to read a single work by Lovecraft or even looked them up, and yet that influence is there. And so of course, when I'm creating monsters that are bursting out of human beings and uh tentacles i've got i've got tentacles in here <laughs> these kinds of things uh of course i thought it was I, I just thought i had to address that in some way even though i i kind of if people were thinking it i waited until the end of the book to like kind of nail it home <laughs> at the very end yeah well, and which is funny because again this is an accidental thing but uh N.K. Jemison did the exact same thing in the city we become. It is not until the final act where, um, mm -hmm. you know, he is directly confronted <laughs> by the book and, and that's yeah. how great minds think alike type of thing. Right, yeah. Uh, and you know, Matt Ruff has done it. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think when especially, and I would say this, you're a marginalized writer and you're one of the people on Lovecraft's list, though his list was huge. Yeah. <laughs> It's more so finding out who's not on Lovecraft's hit list than who was. Like he hates French people, he hates everyone, right? In some in some way, he hates Jews, black people. Everybody is is the other horde encroaching on his world, which many people think you know this informs his whole notion of these monstrous beings out of control that are encroaching on humanity in many ways, and so. I think whenever you're, you've been reading that stuff, I think as a kid, whether it's Lovecraft or someone else, you're often like reading the stuff that you know also has these tiny jabs at you. <laughs> and so you're like, you love it and you hate it at the same time. You're, you're really golem with it in some ways. And you just have to swallow the bitter pills because you like the other stuff. And so, yeah, you get a chance to write, you kind of get, you, you get a chance to do a rebuttal. Yeah. Right. And what better than sometimes taking that very thing that was used against you and then using it to rebut. Like I was saying, you know, taking the tentacles and using it for good yeah, <laughs> in your yeah. argument. I think Victor Laval does this certainly yeah. uh, with the Ballad of Black Tom, probably most expertly, I think, uh, and just directly. Yeah. But 
yeah, I, I think there are ways that you get the chance to do so. And there's never been a more insane example of the zeitgeist that Lovecraft Country and the Ballad of Black Tom came out on the exact same day. But um, uh, yeah, and, and actually, um, I think now, I mean, we could, I could make a shelf on Goodreads for uh, authors of color confronting Lovecraft yeah. in fiction. It's an entire anthology, in fact. I think women of color, <laughs> I forgot the name of it, which is women of color confronting Lovecraft. And yeah, again, it was Silver Marina Garcia's. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And again, you grow up with this stuff. It's there. If you're going to write any kind of supernatural and horror, if you've been watching things, it's there. How do you translate that? Do you just say, hey, thanks, Mr. Lovecraft? Or do you say, <laughs> like, uh, no, I'm going to write back against what you were doing, even while I draw from some of these things? It's a complicated dance, you know? Um, yeah. But I think right, we need so one last question, and this is on the actual writing of it, and so you and I put it in spoilers, so um, mm -hmm. so you can let it fly on this. But um, what were some of your biggest writing challenges that you had to overcome in writing this book, and and um, you know, like what aspect of structuring and writing this book are you are you most proud of? Because those usually come from the ones that are challenging. Yeah. Uh, things that were challenging. Um, one thing I had like the, the song I had to do songwriting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I at first had modern songs. Like there was everything in there from blues, from old blues records to Mahalia Jackson gospel to Beyonce lyrics. And my editor actually said, I love this. You cannot do that because of this thing called copyright. <laughs> okay. And I was like, can I just put in a few lines? I thought I she's like, no, that is not the law. You can't put in anything. And if, or if you do, you get to go through a lot of paperwork to get permission. So you can do that or you can write your own songs. So I wrote my own songs. And that was challenging because I had certain songs that were in that Steve Wonder in there and all these things that were supposed to in some ways. I wanted this story to like people who are familiar with that music. You know, you want to hit them with that cue and they'd be like, oh, I get it. Like a little Easter egg almost. I, I get it, but I had to come up with my own. And that was actually a challenge. Like I would sit there. I'm not a song. So I could sit there trying to say, how can I come up with a song that captures this moment? And so it was a small thing, but it was really challenging, but it was enjoyable in the end because even though I couldn't pull from other people, well, now I got to do what I wanted to do. I could make it much more focused on what I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course the ring shouts I could use because those, those are so out of the public domain. I was able to use those. And so that was also a challenge because I had all these ring shots and I was like, which ones do I want to use? How am I, I have them as these little interludes? How are they going to relate to the next chapter? Like when people read them, I want them to take them to the next chapter and apply them. And so a lot of that was the difficult part, yeah. And and how did you settle on the title and the connection to the ring shots? Like the, um, as a <laughs> when I think of the, all the things that went into making this story, uh, the whole culture of the ring shouts, these uh, spirituals that come from uh, from the era of slavery and they're carried down in places throughout the South, especially the Carolinas, Georgia, and what have you. Uh, these traditions where people are singing, but also being these, these counterclockwise um, spiritual movements um, that have, that have, by the way, uh, similar, there are similar versions of this throughout the Black Atlantic, throughout the uh, Caribbean and parts of uh, Black Latin America as well. And so I knew when I was creating the story because it was going to be this Southern Gothic fantasy, I needed magic, <laughs> right? And I think the first time I'd ever heard a ring shout, if you ever have heard one of the songs that accompanied a ring shout, they were like one of those things that pull on you, right? Like the sound of it, you hear somebody, like there's one called Sign of the Judgment, if anyone wants to listen to it by the Macintosh County singers do renditions and you probably heard it in movies before I know it's been in tv shows and you hear that you hear the full full call of it it just pulls on you and I was like that's magic <laughs> right and so I knew I wanted this magic system in the south and the ring shouts seemed like this perfect place to go in the ring shouts and so when it came to the name like I think I always knew the title some things I didn't know about the book I didn't know all the characters but I always knew it was going to be called ring shout well, I knew that was essential to the story. Well, a, a compliment I want to give you on this book was that I liked it a lot when I read it. 
but when I thumbed through the book and started like trying to put together questions and think about it, um, I've had this experience when, when we do our Philip Dick podcast is that when I, the secondary time that I go through a book, I catch more things that yeah. I'm like, wow, that was really cool. That was really cool. Um, I, I already appreciated and thought this was a great book. I appreciated it even more as I looked at it with second time eyes. And I think um, this is a book that um, will, I think people will grow to understand its importance and its historical value as a historical horror novel. Um, I hope so. I really appreciate your time and joining us. And I hope people will really um, not just uh, read. The, this is one that um, I got it from the library, but I'm going to want a copy on my shelf so I can uh, so I can uh, visit it again in the future and, and, and learn from it. And I really hope, um, somebody out there, uh, uh, wisely, uh, adapts this for film because <laughs> being that it's a novella, it's perfect length, uh, yeah. for, for a film. Uh, so, uh, Jelly Clark, I really appreciate your time coming on Postcards from a Dying World. Do you have anything, la any last things you want to say? Uh, uh, thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And when you uh, when your novel comes out, I uh, definitely want to have you back after I get my yeah. uh, greedy paws on it because um, I'm okay. looking forward to reading it. I Because I also like alternate history a lot and I mm -hmm. think Middle Eastern history is very interesting. So I think you play okay. space. Could you, sorry, I have to go do something really quickly. My dog here, he's, he's going he's to go outside. All right. So it was good talking to you. Well, uh, I'll be in touch. <laughs> okay. Thank you, David. Yeah. Great conversation.